More than $22 million in cash prizes are available to teams with the best ideas to accelerate widespread equitable energy efficiency and building electrification upgrades. The Energy Department's Buildings Upgrade Prize, or Buildings Up, is asking teams to submit innovative concepts to increase building energy upgrades with a nod towards equity or innovation. To learn more about the contest, I had the chance to speak with its prize administrator, Holly Carr. The Buildings Upgrade Prize, or Buildings Up, was really designed to respond to the fact that about 35% of our country's greenhouse gas emissions are coming from buildings, from existing buildings. So if we're going to reduce our emissions in any significant way, we really need to address existing buildings and try to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions. And we have the technologies to do it, but for a variety of reasons, we are still only seeing about 1% to 2% of existing buildings being upgraded with energy upgrades every year. And we've got about 125 million of these buildings, and that's simply not fast enough. So, you know, obviously it's easier to do these sort of upgrades when a new building is being constructed. What sorts of upgrades uh, are there that can cut down on greenhouse gas emissions from buildings? Yes. So for existing buildings, and this prize is completely focused on upgrading existing buildings. And some of the most important things that we can do in existing buildings are to upgrade heating and cooling systems. So both heating and air conditioning and also hot water. So that means transitioning over to heat pumps and heat pump water heaters. And the great thing about heat pumps is that in addition to providing efficient Heating capacity, they also serve as air conditioning or can serve that purpose. So sometimes buildings get air conditioning kind of as a bonus with upgrading to a heat pump. Gotcha. And so this contest isn't necessarily about finding new ideas necessarily. It's just enacting some conservation techniques that may already be there and maybe also adding on some new techniques or what's the idea? That's exactly right. This prize is really not a technology focused prize at its heart. It's really meant to address these non-technical barriers to getting these upgrades done in buildings across the country at scale. So we've got the technologies. We've got the heat pumps. We've got the heat pump water heaters. We know how to insulate buildings. Um, We know how to do air sealing to make sure that they're comfortable. But um, still, we are not getting the level of um, energy upgrades that we need in buildings to meet our greenhouse gas reduction goals. So this is really about addressing the financial, the social, the educational barriers um, and other kinds of barriers to getting these upgrades done at scale. I see. So you're just trying to add maybe a little bit more incentive there for companies to address their building concerns. That's right. And with the recent Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law, we've had these pieces of legislation come on board that have provided additional funding for these upgrades. So they're more affordable than ever, We, but we still need to address these, these non-technical challenges and even remaining financial challenges to making these upgrades really no-brainers for the American public. Gotcha. And so how will this contest work? Are you just going to go, I imagine you're not going to go building to building. Is it going to be realty companies that are going to be uh, able to submit or how's this going to work? So we are looking for 20 to 60 multi-stakeholder teams that will be uh, winners in this phase one of the 
prize. We do anticipate the prize to consist of about four phases over about five years. So this very first phase is the concept phase, and we're looking for 20 to 60 uh, multi-stakeholder teams. We're really open to what those teams look like. They might consist of, you're right, building owners, local governments, tribal governments, state and uh, municipal governments, nonprofit organizations, for-profits, we're really open to what those teams look like. Um, we are especially hope that the teams will include community-based organizations. Um, and we have a really strong focus in this prize on making sure that these upgrades happen in what we're calling equity-eligible buildings. So low and moderate income buildings and communities, disadvantaged business buildings. So we're, we have a strong focus of, for the prize in those areas. There are two pathways that teams can uh, choose from to submit a concept plan. They can choose the equity-centered innovation pathway, which is really focused on um, teams that are committing to complete the majority of their upgrades in equity-eligible buildings, in those low and moderate income homes, in those disadvantaged business uh, buildings, et cetera. And teams that make that commitment to focus their upgrade initiatives there will receive $400,000 in prize funding, as well as access to a whole ecosystem of technical assistance to help them take their concept to an executable uh, implementation plan in about 12 months. The second pathway that teams can choose from is the open innovation pathway. So um, teams... Uh, following that pathway, they're certainly welcome to address uh, equity-eligible buildings in their concept plan, but they're not required to. So those teams choose a building type or a geographic area or both where they want to complete upgrades, and they create a concept plan for how they're going to really scale those upgrades in that building upgrade zone. So you weren't kidding. This isn't a technology-focused contest like the energy department usually runs. This is this is public policy stuff. This is for political science majors like myself, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> it is much more focused, as I said, on those non-technical barriers. We've got the tech. We just need to get it in buildings now. And w where does this contest stand in the Department of Energies? You've, you mentioned the equity in technology-focused areas like this. And where does this stand in the Department of Energy's overall mission and goals pertaining to the Biden administration's directives? I would say Buildings Up is just right smack in the middle of our mission, specifically in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. Our mission includes accelerating the deployment of technologies and solutions that equitably transition America to net zero greenhouse gas emissions economy wide. And that is exactly what we're trying to do here, um, particularly in the uh, equity-centered pathway, to make sure that folks are not left behind in this transition to clean energy and being able to use that um, clean electricity that is increasingly uh, available on our grid, thanks to solar and, and wind, primarily. And I got a little ahead of myself there. Uh, how will the groups that submit entries be judged in this contest? How will you determine who has the best plan? Yeah, so folks can actually go right now to HeroX.com slash Buildings Up. And that's that's really the nexus for this prize and where all the information is. The rules, the official rules document is located there. And um, that the application will also be available for folks to submit their concept plans will be available on that website February 18th. So teams can access that application. There are 
four or five narratives that teams will complete depending on which pathway they're choosing to pursue. So teams respond to those four or five narratives. They're fairly short narratives of about 500 words each. And that collection of narratives constitutes their concept plan. So we will have a group of reviewers here at at DOE and some partner organizations that will review each of those applications, read through those narratives, and score them on a very specific um, set of questions. And so combined with um, those scores and potentially interviews that we may do with some teams, we'll make decisions on those 20 to 60 winning teams that will be a part of the cohort that will move forward in the Buildings Upgrade Prize. And will you be among the reviewers or are you just dishing out the prize money? <laughs> I, for this first phase, I will be a part of the review team. Yes. But I do want to mention that we are really looking for in this prize new voices and new faces who perhaps have not participated in DOE funding opportunities in the past. The reason we, we chose a prize structure in large part is that it is simpler for participants to participate in. It's uh, There's not as much paperwork involved. It's a little more straightforward than some of our other funding vehicles. And we really do want to see new faces and new organizations um, submitting applications to participate in this prize. So if applying for DOE funding seems a little daunting, we actually have an application support bonus prize available that is open right now. This is a prize of and 10 hours of technical assistance for new and under-resourced teams that would like to try to submit a phase one application. So we'll provide some some cash and some uh, technical assistance to help folks think about their phase one application and get that put together and submitted. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century 
educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, 
we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.